welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Picking up the pieces. Recent developments in the 1MDB scandal. As many of our listeners will know, 1MDB is synonymous with the largest financial fraud of the century, whose tentacles extend across the dark economy, from Hollywood stars, complicit bankers and lawyers, to wealthy Arab princes and corrupt political dynasties. This is the story of how one man's greed fed an ever-growing web of deceit that snowballs into corporate malfeasance and state-sponsored corruption on a truly horrific scale. Following on from our earlier podcast in February, Dickon Johnson, CEO of Themis, sat down for another catch-up with billion-dollar whale co-author and Wall Street Journal reporter Bradley Hope to pick up the pieces and talk about the latest developments in the scandal that just keeps on giving. This podcast is brought to you by Themis, with thanks to our partners in Compass. Good morning to those of you in Australia. Good evening to those of you in the UK. And I know we have a few guests in North America. Encompass joined the Themis family earlier this year, and we're delighted to be able to partner with them in this, our first event together. The focus of Themis is to provide insight and intelligence for those in the world of financial crime, helping their members to identify and manage specific financial crime risks. Themis are focused at exposing the latest financial crime threats, criminal techniques and trends. And what makes them special is their focus on showcasing the impacts of financial crime on the global economy in general. That's the other reason why the story of one IMDB is such an important story that needs to be told. In February of this year, I attended a similar event that Themis put on in London in conjunction with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. And I was very keen to be able to try to replicate this event uh, for the Australasian market. Um, And whilst we couldn't do it in person, we're delighted that we've been able to use technology to facilitate this event. The event itself has taken on even more relevance as Goldman Sachs have recently settled with the Department of Justice for a $3 billion fine. And I think Bradley will provide some more insight into that later in the discussion. So these matters are very real and they're very relevant. In fact, my business partner, Wayne Johnson and I co-founded Encompass many years ago because we personally had been the victims of significant financial crime, which ended up costing us millions and millions of dollars. So these issues for us, for Wayne and I, are very personally, and we know the impact that they have on everyone's life. About 12 months ago, Wayne and I did an interview in London when we were asked by an interview the scale of the dark economy. That's monies that come from people smuggling, drug cartels, tax evasion, even arms trafficking. And the top line number that came out of the United Nations was between four and five trillion dollars per annum. And of course, in the world we live in today, just how big is four or five trillion dollars? Is it really that big of a number? And the interviewer went on to qualify that the four to five trillion dollars is enough money to fund the NHS in the UK for 20 plus years. So the amounts of money that we're talking about here are significant. And these issues that we're touching on today are very real. And what the billion dollar whale story illustrates It illustrates that more than ever, we need to support the work of regulators who, together with financial crime and compliance execs, help to keep controls and regulations in place so that the environment in which we all work and which we all operate 
is for the benefit of us all and for the benefit of society as a whole. So without any further ado, I will pass over to Dickon and Bradley, who are both in London. And thank you all for joining this event. It is a great event that I am sure everyone will enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Roger, and thank you very much to all of those who, who've joined us from Australia, from Singapore, KL, to Europe and America as well. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today interviewing our esteemed guest, Bradley Hope. I can think of no one better placed to tell us about the 1MDB scandal, one of the most audacious financial heists of the century, with all of its intricacies, personalities and repercussions. Bradley is the co-author of the best-selling book, Billiard Dollar Whale, which dissects the scandal and shines a spotlight on its main protagonist, the modern-day Gatsby, Joe Lowe, as well as a full cast of leading politicians, celebrities, businessmen and women, and well-known companies across all corners of the globe. If you haven't read it yet, this is the book they tried to ban, the book that unveils the most unbelievable gut-wrenching fraud where Lowe and a small band of accomplices stole billions of dollars pretty much in plain sight and then laughed all the way to the banks and to the offshore tax havens. Bradley himself is an award-winning reporter who's worked for the Wall Street Journal for the last four years, covering finance and malfeasance from New York City and London. Before that, he spent six years as a correspondent in the Middle East, where he covered the Arab Spring uprisings from Cairo, Tripoli, Tunis and Beirut. Bradley's job doesn't tick many calm and predictable boxes. He was detained by authorities in Bahrain, reported from the front lines of the Libyan civil war and has been tear gassed in raucous Egyptian protests. He's a Pulitzer finalist and Loeb winner and has written two other books besides Billion Dollar Whale, the Last Days of the Pharaoh, a chronicle of the final days and hours of the presidency of Hosni Mubarak, and Blood and Oil, an investigation into the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince. Bradley, it's a real privilege and honor to have you back here on this Themis broadcast in partnership with Encompass. So Bradley, let's start in this way. So Malaysian politics, Saudi princes, Western banks, Hollywood celebrities, lavish parties, expensive champagne, turning the Eiffel Tower pink. The 1MDB case is an intricate multi-jurisdictional fraud that dragged so many people, companies and offences into its vortex. How would you explain the 1MDB scandal to anyone in our audience who perhaps isn't so familiar with the story? Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, it, essentially, it, well, on one hand, the 1MDB scandal for me is really is is a guide to how the world really works. Um, we've seen so many scandals in the in the last uh, decade alone that reveal aspects of the world. There's Panama Papers, Paradise Papers. Um, you know, there's the recent Wirecard scandal. All of them are extremely revelatory, but 1MDB has something really special about it um, because it was so. I think it comes down to Jolo himself being so brazen and so. Um, dedicated to making this fraud work that he, from the beginning to the end, he really shows, it's almost like a, a lesson plan for how the world works in terms of the offshore system, the banking system, how Hollywood works, um, you know, how international politics works with China. So anyway, just to sum it up, it's essentially, Joe Lo is this young guy from Penang in Malaysia who never had a real job in his life. He was just kind of a, a financier from his from the from his twenties, um, he he became close to the prime minister of Malaysia, um, persuaded him to take over this new sovereign wealth fund. The sovereign wealth fund was a a non-conventional sovereign wealth fund. You know, when you think of sovereign wealth funds, you think of the savings account of a country from their oil revenue or something. In this case, 1MDB was a a sovereign wealth fund that relied entirely on borrowed money, initially borrowed money from Malaysian banks and and later borrowed money from international investors, pension funds, through big bond offerings um, arranged by Goldman Sachs. And so all of this money poured into this company and Jolo was running it from behind the scenes. All of his people were in certain positions. 
um, it was almost, you know, not, not that difficult for them in some ways because it was so fully captured and controlled by Jolo and, and with help from the Prime Minister of Malaysia. And through a series of arrangements um, with, uh, with foreign partners, they just um, stole that money. Uh, the, the large part, of, so I think they, they raised about $13 billion and they probably stole in the range of six to $7 billion, so about half of it. Um, and so over the course of about five years especially, this money was just stolen in, in, in a almost unbelievable way. Like for example, the first theft itself is just remarkable. They 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 arranged this joint venture with a Saudi partner, and on the on the paperwork it said, okay, well we're going to send a billion dollars, but 300 million go to the actual joint venture, and 700 million go to this other account. And that, it turns out that account, you know, it all kind of came out later was completely run and owned by Joe Lowe, this other company called Goodstar. And that was the kind of the start of these, you know, gushers of money that they had stolen and coming into his possession. And he went on this, just, you know, I think the, the, what people will know about 1MDB is the kind of extraordinary spending spree that Joe Lowe went on at first kind of as in secret. And later as he tried to rebrand himself as a, as the heir of a, a great fortune that isn't true, of course. Um, you know, going around the world on private jets and hanging out with celebrities and throwing probably the craziest parties anyone has seen since it, maybe ever, but maybe since at least Adnan Hashoji, uh, you know, the great playboy of the of the 90s and 80s and 90s. I think, um, Bradley, that, that's one of the, the most interesting things for, for me is you talk about it being unbelievable you talk about the the kind of size and scale of 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 his theft and and the kind of brazen antics that joe Lowe kind of displayed in, in spending that money and i mean perhaps now now we here we are in 2020 and with a, with a benefit of hindsight it, it would be easy to say well like this just wouldn't happen you know someone in this whole chain of events has got to go you know this guy's a joker or a fake or a fraud you know I, how come it took someone more than six years for to, to press the stop button and kind of shut this whole house of cards down? Well, in, in retrospect, there were many efforts to get to the bottom of it. There was many people who were suspicious of Joe Lowe, whether in banks or in the Malaysian kind of law enforcement apparatus, but they were just continuously stymied at different points. And um, I think it speaks to, I mean, it, it, it kind of maybe would create a slightly cynical perspective in somebody that um, it's really, once you've stolen enough money, it's very hard to kind of clamp down on that. You know, there were, he had such enormous resources to um, include everyone in the scandal. So even in Malaysia alone, I think it will never know the full extent of the list, the long parade of people who received some kind of economic benefit from Jolo's theft. And, and he was, I think this is actually the key to why he was able to last so long is he was extremely generous with other people's money. Um, so he, that goes from um, a, a top conspirator my, my, who was already a billionaire would, would have got, like in this case, Kadam Al-Kubesi, this UAE official, you know, he received about half a billion dollars. So that was his price. And then it goes all the way down to the bottom. You know, the people that became his personal assistants and stuff, they all became millionaires. And when you when you go from being a wage earner to a millionaire, it's very hard to, I guess, swallow. I mean, I haven't been through the experience myself. Um, it's very hard to swallow this idea that all the money you just got was illegitimate and you should probably give it back. And so I think he just made so many people co-conspirators and not even with them knowing the full extent of what they're involved in, just giving them the money, them taking it, mm -hmm. that it really, it's, it stopped this thing from, from falling apart as fast as it should have. Um, but on the other hand, it did sort of come, it did kind of explode into public view in an extraordinary way. It just took some time, you know, it took about five, six years, like you said. Yeah. But it, but it, again, it's extraordinary because even amongst that list of um, co-conspirators, as you see, there's a there's a lot of very respectable um, professional business people there as well. So there's a lot of accountants, lawyers, auditors, trust providers, etc. How come none of them kind of blew the whistle either. What, why did they get sucked into this web of, of kind of lies and deceit? Yeah, I mean, there's, unfortunately, this is not a story with a lot of heroes um, in terms of whistleblowers. There, 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 are, there, there are a few people that stepped forward and, and took on a huge amount of risk. Like obviously the early days of the 1MDB scandal were possible to cover 
from the Wall Street Journal perspective because the people who were doing that internal Malaysian investigation, they were quashed by the prime minister, but they found a way to get the information out anyways. And that, and that was really important. So there are people that did things like that. On the auditor front, it was definitely not pretty because OneMDB kept having problems with an auditor would find a problem and then OneMDB would just kind of quietly replace them. And there would be no sort of remarks about that. There would be no public remarks about it. But obviously it's a pretty serious red flag when you go through three auditors, um, all of them from the big four. So there's only one left, I guess. Um, yeah, so I think, th and there, there was an example as well in, the, in some of the Goldman stuff where um, a lawyer stepped forward and told Goldman, listen, there's something funny about this deal. It doesn't make sense that 1MDB, a so-called sovereign wealth fund, is asking for the proceeds of the bond offering to go into this tiny um, private wealth bank that's based in Switzerland. It doesn't make sense. Like they don't have institutional clients. And um, But but in, in, in a way, that's probably why Goldman Sachs is, is, is in the position it's in now, having to pay back all this money because it sort of ignored the red flags. Well, absolutely, because because you would think, and, and we're all trained as as kind of um, finance professionals, compliance professionals, that you have to, you know, write these suspicious transaction reports when something goes wrong like this. And um, what were some of the problems with with the auditors? Why why were they kind of um, unhappy with with the uh, the kind of setup in one D one MDB then? Well, the number one problem was that original theft, which it started off as um, 700 million, but it eventually grew to about 1.8 billion of the total stolen. And what happened was they were constantly at 1MDB under Joe Lowe's direction, trying to account or trying to come up with a way to conceal the fact that, that money was missing. So first it became, uh, it was, first it was a joint venture, joint venture investment. Then it became a loan to the joint venture investment. Then it later on it became these units in an offshore um, kind of like a mutual fund. And, and the auditors kept saying, well, look, you're saying that you have this asset, these units, can we go and look at the underlying investments? Can we read the paperwork? And, and there was always an excuse from 1MDB why that wasn't possible or, or why this was so illiquid, it couldn't be moved. And I think that was probably the number one problem they had. Uh, at the, uh, and, and each time one auditor raised questions about it, the next auditor found a way to kind of make an excuse for this. Essentially, it was a, a literal shell, you know, inside this thing was nothing. There was, or it was like a few, you know, it would be like opening the treasure box and finding a few pennies inside. So. Yeah, and I think that that comes out really clearly in your book in, in terms of how easy it is for, for criminals to set up new companies in offshore financial centers, tax havens, et cetera. Um, and so I think that that was a really key component of the whole scam. But also, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's actually one of the pieces of the puzzle that, that you, Bradley, first spotted, um, perhaps not from the sandy beaches of the British Virgin Islands, but from your time as a reporter in Abu Dhabi, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the bits, so, so the scandal kind of erupted and it, it, it all kind of came out in really a fragmentary nature. So in the beginning, we didn't really, we knew we had a sense of what was going on, but we did we didn't have proof. So in the, in, in the early days, we had these different scandals that were all related to 1MDB. There was, um, there was this kind of corrupt system where 1MDB was doing deals and then the, the seller of an asset was kicking money back into a charity that was really just a, a, a thinly disguised political slush fund. That was actually the first scandal with 1MDB. It's, it's kind of largely forgotten now because the, the bigger scandal, you know, came next. Then the separate sec, uh, scandal was that there was all this money that had gone into the prime minister's account from this offshore company. Um, and there was no way to connect, uh, you know, and then on the other hand, 1MDB itself was falling apart and there was money missing from the company. And these three things all connected, but in ways we couldn't yet figure out. Um, and, and we still hadn't really proven that 1MDB had, was missing money. You know, 1MDB and the prime minister of Malaysia were maintaining, it's a perfectly, the company's fine. There's just a, a cash flow issue. Um, and so what happened was, we, we just did a very simple examination of the financial statements of 1MDB and of IPIC, the Abu Dhabi in, in, uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund that was partnering with 1MDB and just saw this mismatch. You know, 1MDB said they sent money over and IPIC didn't really register having received it. And then um, in the book, we, did, we detail this one interaction we had with somebody who was trying to defend 1MDB and say that we're wrong, there's nothing going on. And we pushed that person to give us some wire transfer documents 
to show the money had gone to IPIC, to a subsidiary of IPIC. And when we when we looked closer at the name of the recipient, it, it was exactly the same, except there was an additional LTD at the end, a limited. And, and there was no company like that in the in the structure of the sovereign wealth fund. So we basically figured out there was a kind of a lookalike company in the British Virgin Islands that was created to take the money. It wasn't part of the, the um, Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth fund. So amazing. So basically they, they, they tried to con, um, you know, the whole the whole circle just by kind of manipulating some some invoices and creating fake companies in in uh, offshore companies but they might have got away with it if you hadn't spotted that one little tiny detail um on that kind of payment notice so to speak yeah well i tend to think that um the one mdb was a uh, would, would have collapsed without my help but um but but i think we did definitely move it forward at that time for sure well, I think you're, you're probably being very modest, Bradley. Um, let's let's turn our attention now to, to the main protagonist in, in the whole story. And I think one thing that shines through from the very first pages of your book is that Jolo, the, the, the central character here, the mastermind, really understood the importance of, of networking. And so for him, it seems to be all about who you know. And I think you point out that he made you know, really powerful friends at Harrow, Wharton, um, and he acquired a taste for socializing with some of the biggest names he, he could buy from Hollywood celebrities to the super rich and politically connected. So we've got legends of the screen like Leonardo DiCaprio, Martin Scorsese, musicians such as Swiss Beats, Buster Rhymes, Nicole Scherzinger and models and socialites, Miranda Kerr, um, Paris Hilton, etc. So just take a listen to this. And actually, this is particularly for our audience in Australia. And um, so this is a short clip taken from an interview by the UK chat show host, Jonathan Ross, talking about the spoils of Lowe's patronage uh, with the famous actor and musician, Jamie Foxx. And I think, Bradley, you refer to this in your book. The full interview is publicly available on YouTube. But just look at this. I mean, this is an international star. He of Ray, Dreamgirls and Django Unchained fame actually boasting on air about his friendship with Joe Lau. star and, and I get the feeling you, you fully enjoy that kind of side of life would I be right in thinking that you appreciate the benefits the benefits that? man getting in the clubs and I mean you know <laughs> let me ask you this restaurants I think I know the answer girls coming let me ask you, you this know? where did you spend uh New Year's Eve well, I, you know what? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're talking about like this past. Yeah, this is the benefits of yeah, being benefits, a superstar. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a friend. You know, he got some money. He got some money, and uh he flew me, uh Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Jonah Hill and some other cats, and we flew to Australia, right? And we did the countdown in Australia. G'day, Mike. How are you, Mike? Jamie, g'day, Mike. <laughs> so we did the countdown in Australia, then jumped back on a plane, and then did the countdown in Vegas. That's crazy. So he had. Yeah. That's how famous yeah. he had two New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So listen, I think we've actually done better in, in using modern technology and this Zoom call. We're in two different time zones at, at the same time. But um, really for me, it's amazing. How did how did this one guy manage to lure all of these individuals in? And, and how was this kind of central to, to how he managed to pull off the whole 1MDB scheme? Yeah, I mean, if, I think, he, like I said before, he didn't ever have he never had a real job. Like he didn't graduate from college and then go and work in a bank or an investment house. So he was always doing his own things, creating his own funds. And I think he has one special talent more so than anything else, which is if he spends time with someone, he can very quickly realize what motivates that person. So if if he's with um, you know. I think celebrities are are looking for different things. Different kinds of celebrities are looking for different things. Some of them got paid just direct cash payments to attend a party, like Paris Hilton or something like that. Paris Hilton got paid money just to kind of like hang out with Jolo for a few days in in France. Um, meanwhile, on the other end, people like Leonardo DiCaprio, he doesn't need Jolo to be paying him directly. But what he needs is a lot more money. He needs film financing, and so Jolo had a solution to that. You know he. Told him I have hundreds of millions of dollars and I'll fund, you know, Wolf of Wall Street completely. And that's just true throughout the thing. You know, if he meets a, a billionaire, he knows that they have different problems. You know, even the 
the people that we think of the being the richest people in the world, sheikhs in Abu Dhabi or princes in the Gulf, they actually have some liquidity problems. You know, they actually could use half a billion dollars of actual cash and it would make a difference for them, you know? So I think he just always, always is, he's listening to the person. He's actually quite a down to earth person. He's able to really engage with people from the top to the bottom. You know, he he's not like an impolite or impolite or aloof person. And so I think he could just figure that out and he would immediately try to use it to, to, to gain their trust and to gain their friendship. So basically what you're saying is all, all these hangers on, whether they were the, the kind of ultra rich or the, the celebrities, they fell for his kind of charm and, and more importantly, his money. And, and that perhaps blinded them to the, the kind of criminal sources of these obscene displays of, of wealth. Um, I think there's a, there's a really good uh, quote that I like from your book as well. Um, and, and as the old saying goes, it takes one to know one, because whilst all these kind of celebrities are, are being fooled by Joe Lau, um, here's what Jordan Belfort, the, the kind of real life crook and inspiration for the Wolf of Wall Street, had to say about his very first encounter with, with Joe Lowe. So he said, Leo got sucked in. Leo is an honest guy. But I met these guys and said, these guys are effing criminals. I was like, I don't need these effing people. I knew it. It was obvious. And I love the fact that there, there's Jordan Belfort. You know the the real life inspiration for for the Wolf of Wall Street calling this out straight away on day one, and yet it took five six years for the rest of the world to kind of catch up with that um, and realize yeah. that something was, was seriously wrong there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And 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 I think also that I mean the, the fact is so long as he was stealing new money, you know, the 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 alarm bell started ringing when one MDB it turned out to be essentially bankrupt you know so like so sometimes i think we we find out about financial crime when the institution itself starts having real problems so so for a long time it was just borrowing more and more money and and it was able to use some of that money to kind of recycle and and kick the can down the road but when that that's why i think you know that that was actually the key moment for what mdb is when it it was trying to do this last minute ipo to kind of kick the can down the road a bit further but there was so much bad noise and and feelings about the company that they couldn't pull it off. And then things just rapidly started to spiral out of control from there. Yeah, exactly. And you, but, but I think you also describe uh, some some pretty brazen techniques that he uses. I mean, what, what would you say is the kind of most brazen technique he used to try and hide these problems and stop them from, from coming to, to the fore as, as, the, as the kind of house of cards began to to wobble, so to speak. Yeah, I think the, the one that I find the most surreal is that, so 1MDB was in a, a true crisis. The IPO had failed. It was it was struggling to pay debts. And and he in a, they managed to, in a last minute effort, raise another billion dollars through a new loan to kind of help, you know, stabilize the company. And so Joe Lowe took the money and he, he cycled it through this chain of offshore companies so that the new auditor could say that they were redeeming money from those units I told you about in the beginning. Uh, you know, he would just cycle it through and it would just go round and round in circles like seven times. But even then he didn't use the money to stabilize YMDB, he stole that money again. So he, the company was already teetering on the precipice because of all the stolen money and it raised a billion dollars, probably could have bought him some time, but instead he stole that money in two, in two and he used it to buy his quarter of a billion dollar um, yacht, which has is like an ice class yacht. You know, it can go through the North Pole, and um, he eventually lived on that yacht for a long time during the kind of uh, his his one part of his fugitive days. So, so even even as the the kind of real warning signs were beginning to happen, even as they this was all beginning to scare people around the world, he actually had the confidence to go out and buy a super yacht and just say it's not going to affect me nothing's going to nothing can can really hit me like this um yeah is is that a, a kind of personality trait of his in in terms of that kind of um you know almost sociopathic kind of uh yeah behavior really yeah yeah um, I, I think there there is something a bit sociopathic about him or, or perhaps it's almost like he's missing the part of a person that makes you extremely anxious and stressed. So I've never mm -hmm. met anybody who spent time with Jolo who said, yeah, he was so worried, he was so nervous. 
they always just said he was remarkably calm and cool about all this stuff, you know, you know, just observing the the the, the DOJ announcements about himself, you know, uh, or whatever it is. N nothing seemed to it was quite quite unflappable as a person. So I think that was also pretty critical, considering it's such a complex brazen fraud. You know, I think anybody else the would it would be weighing on them at all times. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now we've talked a bit about. Um, the, the kind of techniques he used. We've talked a bit about his spending. We talked a bit about his celebrity friends. There, there also seemed to be a real pattern for Jolo around kind of pandering to politicians and and using their influence to further his position and, and kind of develop this fraud. So obviously, you know, he he used the former Malaysian PM Najib Razak as his principal pawn. But there's a whole kind of series of connections that he's building with the Chinese government, uh, with former kind of US President Barack Obama, with Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. And so how was he able to keep using these kind of senior politicians and, and world leaders as, as puppets or actors in this elaborate play? Well, it, 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 those obviously happened at different phases. Like, you know, obviously the Najib relationship was core to the whole fraud part of the scandal. Um, and then towards Towards the, the latter part of the fraud scandal, he found this um, Washington kind of campaign finance guy and started working with that guy and get, you know doing all these deals. He was making huge amounts of money without real commercial um, justification. And so he just he would always find some person who could be the person who could get him in with somebody else. So um, and, and the reason he was doing that in the US with Obama was he was trying to basically prove his worth to Najib as well, saying, listen, I'm going to get you to play golf with the president of the USA, you know, and that's the kind of power I wield. So for him, there was, there was an aspect of power. Um, so then, then, but the other kind of relationships happened at different stages. So when the whole thing started falling apart and the FBI started investigating, he could no longer travel around the world. And he, he, he started to spend all of his time in China. And so then now he was in China and he was trying to find a way to make himself useful to the Chinese officials and, and government officials there. And what he said to them was, listen, I actually have great blackmail on Malaysia. Like the prime minister of Malaysia was my, my co-conspirator in the scandal. And if you help bail him out, he'll do just about anything. And so basically Joe Jolo played this role where he, he helped um, China do these massive Belt and Road Initiative deals in Malaysia. In exchange, there was money that was being siphoned out of those deals to help cover up the 1MDB scandal. And, and Najib himself essentially started to yield sovereignty to China, which, which to me is actually probably the biggest crime of all um, in this whole scandal. You know, you know, working, uh, you know, giving up all kinds of strategic grounds to China. This is this is a strategic country, Malaysia, where it's located in the in the region, and it was you know closer cooperation about naval things and the use of ports and 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 they had just gotten started when it all came unraveled. And then the the Trump part was the final stage, which is now Joe Lowe's in a lot of trouble and he wants to get out of trouble. So he hired all of Donald Trump's lawyers, all five of them. Like he he just hired them all in one go. And and he just I mean I think he has a very cynical world worldview, which is everyone's got a price and all I have to do is pay the right people. And 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 thankfully in the OMDB case, we've seen it's not quite true. His worldview isn't justified because every time he tries to do something, it sort of falls apart, blows up in his face. So you know he tried to get all this money to Elliot Broidy, this big Republican fundraiser, um, you know, again, like tens of millions of dollars, really large amounts of money. And now Elliot Broidy's in a lot of trouble for that. He and and everybody else who's involved is in trouble for that. And so it, and, it, and it didn't actually have any impact on his case. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump didn't interfere with the Department of Justice despite these efforts. So it's just one of those stories where it keeps going. And, and that's actually what I find most fascinating about it. It's very rare in journalism you find a story that just keeps going. It never stops. And, and in this case, it, it keeps going and developing and, and moving in directions I would never have guessed. Like the whole China part I, I found to be utterly fascinating. And, again, revelatory about um, something, a, a whole new topic that's quite opaque. It, it, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that's so incredible about this is, is the original heist is, is kind of unbelievable. And you think someone's got to notice that this is wrong, but then it keeps getting bigger and more more daring. And, and as you say, 
um, Joe seems to be trying to fix these problems with even bigger and bolder bets, so to speak, and, and using these kind of world leaders to do that. So, so let's pick up on that a little bit. So obviously um, you and Tom Wright published Billion Dollar Whale in 2018, and even then things were moving so quickly. So you had to uh, release a revised and updated version in, in September 2019. Um, but even since then, a, a lot has happened. So why don't we pick up from there? Um, let's talk about the former Ma Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak first. So. In July this year, he was found guilty of criminal breach of trust, money laundering and abuse of power. And although he was sentenced to 12 years in jail, he remains free pending the outcome of the appeal. Can we expect any more twists and turns um, with Najib's particular trial? Yeah. Well, they 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 convicted him on the simplest part of the one MDB scandal, and actually a relatively small part. It was the part that occurred within Malaysia itself, you know, because it was a part that didn't require the whole offshore explanations, the mutual legal assistance um, from different countries around the world. So there's still there's still an extraordinary amount of of mysteries in the 1MDB case. They could still be kind of revealed. There could be just a lot of revelations on that front. And also his wife is separately, um, Rosma, the former first lady, she's also facing charges. So there's there's still um, the possibility for some new revelations in the case. And also uh, one of the most interesting things that's happened in, in I think in the last year is um, the uh, a, a Malaysian anti-corruption commission released all these recordings. So for some reason, Najib was had his phone tapped the entire time of the 1MDB scandal, especially towards the end. Um, and so like some of these recordings are him. I mean, they're just extraordinary conversations that we you know with the, the, you know, obviously the prime minister of Malaysia calling the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and sort of beckoning him oh can you know we need to work something out here this is really embarrassing can you help me and, and his these are the kind of conversations you never would expect to hear and he was and so there's a lot of things like that that are still kind of coming but i think in general we, we've 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 kind of crossed um into a phase where we're, there's probably going to be less headline grabbing news um especially ever since goldman sachs was fined um in the last couple of months you know, there's a few other things like Tim Leisner, the Goldman partner. We're expecting him to be sentenced to prison time. And um, there's a whole lot of cleanup going on in the scandal, but not so many big assets or big cases anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, just touching on the Goldman point. So uh, they they recently agreed to pay what a kind of two point nine billion settlement to um, uh, the Department of Justice in, in October this year. And I think their, their tally of penalties across international regulators across the US, UK, Hong Kong, Singapore is now what close to five billion billion dollars. Um, what else what else can we expect um, from Goldman and from some of the leading banks that were involved in, in this case as well? I think Goldman was the biggest kind of financial institution to be um, held accountable in this. And I, I don't I don't expect there to be anything quite on that level. There are still a whole number of cases in Switzerland involving the banks. You know, they 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 kind of find them in a, in a civil manner, but there's still criminal investigations going on. There's still criminal cases in America that have not been resolved. Like, for example, Joe Lowe worked closely with this former member of the Fugees called Praz. Um, who's on? He's going to face trial. Ellie Brody still has some some outstanding issues, um, and there's another another Goldman uh, executive is facing a trial in America as well. Um, but I'm not sure if there's going to be any sort of multi-billion-dollar fines and things. Yeah, I mean this this is really I mean this is really of the moment now, isn't it? I mean it was only what five five days ago that uh, former president of Goldman, Gary Cohn. Kind of said he would he would pay back 10 million of uh, 10 million of those into a kind of Goldman nominated charity, and I think they are trying to reclaw back some of these kind of senior management payouts and partner payouts. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think of the money that Goldman's paying, about 60 something million dollars is being clawed back from the the high ranking Goldman partners who received that portion of their bonuses from the 1MDB. Bond issuances. I mean, you know, it's actually an, it's such an extraordinary case because um, these bond issuances 
you know, your your typical kind of fee for a bond issuance might be about one percent, and and the way that Goldman structured it, it was almost ten percent of the overall value of the bonds. Very expensive debt, um, and and there's just so many red flags. You know, I think in retrospect they're kicking themselves, thinking, how could we ever even think this is even a, a, a acceptable risk at all? You know, because essentially at one point they, they had just borrowed money. The Malaysian elections were about to come, and Najib personally went up to a Goldman executive and said, uh, I think it was at Davos, and said, hey, we need to raise another multi-billion dollar bond, and we need you to do it quickly and as quietly as possible. <laughs> I mean, you can't get more um, sort of suspicious than that. So so they're really, I think they, they, they've taken a huge hit. So so you point, yeah, I was just saying, you pointed to, to that kind of 10% um, fees, and, and that really was one of the big red flags that got the Wall Street Journal and, and the Sarawak report kind of really wondering what was going on here at 1MDB, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that was actually the first um, Wall Street Journal story was about, oh, wow, Goldman Sachs is making a lot of money on bond on bond offerings, offerings in, in Southeast Asia. And, um, and even then, they had a funny feel to it. People were starting to kind of talk about it. And it was, it was, it, it put 1MDB on the map as a very strange institution that was going around doing things that were not very commercial, you know, like that, that's a very expensive way to raise money for a sovereign wealth fund, especially with a kind of government back backing. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's your, what's your take on these latest developments, Bradley? So do you think these sorts of, uh, financial penalties and, and kind of criminal cases um, are enough of a kind of deterrent for others. So, so can bankers, lawyers, auditors, real estate agents, high value dealers or others expect a kind of high raft of tighter regulations following this case? Or are we at a watershed when organizations themselves will be driving a more proactive approach to managing their financial crime risk because they see this happening and they see the kind of real and human impacts that that financial crime has. What, what are your views there? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say in, in 1MDB, there's a couple of big banks like Goldman, some of the small Swiss banks, some of the Singapore um, bankers have been held to account. Obviously, there's these cases that we talked about. But in general, the auditors haven't really been hit very hard. The law firms have not been hit at all, despite some really outrageous um, activity. Um, like in particular, there was um, a uh, Sherman and Sterling, the U.S. law firm, essentially operated as the kind of chief money launderer of Joe Lowe. Not, I'm not saying wittingly, but for a long time, because what they did was Joe Lowe was transferring all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars, into this special kind of account that's meant to sort of briefly hold some money before a client's buying like a building or something. Instead, they were paying out all his bills, nightclub bills, you know, uh, luxury charters and things like that. And and the, the result was anybody receiving the money just knew that they were receiving the money from Sherman and Sterling, this like white shoe, well-established law firm. And, and it's unclear what kind of due diligence Sherman and Sterling were doing because we now know that all of that money was just brazenly stolen and put into a Seychelles company and then transfer there, you know. So um, I think we haven't seen sort of across the board holding holding of account. But on the other hand, some of those institutions that weren't fined, they have had a reputational blow. You know, if you Google some of those institutions now, it comes up. Oh yeah, they had this major role in this scandal. So I think that that is a probably a pretty serious deterrent because nobody wants to be associated with being the sort of chief money launderer of Joe Lowe for a period of time, even if it was um, unwittingly. So, sure. you know, it, I, I think with these cases, there's so many perpetrators, so many co-conspirators. It sometimes feels disheartening to see that some of them, even serious ones, didn't really get hit very hard. But I think it just comes down to law enforcement taking a, a, a kind of perspective that they can't go after every single criminal. What they're trying to do is create a deterrent effect um, and show this is something that has heavy penalties and you may face criminal liability, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to do that with every single case because it might be just too burdensome with such a complicated case. So, and obviously we see Joe Lowe himself is still at large, you know, it, it shows you um, that unfortunately in this day and age, despite all the technology, all the cooperation, a major financial crime that crosses the globe 
is one of the most difficult things to police. Um, there's still billions of dollars missing. Goldman Sachs is paying for money that's missing. They're, they're not, they're, that money is still missing. It's still in the possession of Joe Lowe and people like that. Huge, huge amounts of money. And so I think it's, it does show you, you know, we have this quote in the book in the very beginning in the epigraph that, you know, if you steal a little, they throw you in jail. If you steal a lot, they make you the king. And, and that's sort of, there's, there's some truth to that, I think. Yeah. So, so any any idea where where Joe is um, at the moment? So he he doesn't have a lot of freedom, obviously, because he he can't travel to most countries that are members of Interpol. There's red notices for him. Um, so and, and and obviously, what we talked about this Belt and Road stuff. He he he's kind of in a kind of uh, probably unwelcome embrace with China because they probably loved him when he was behind the scenes negotiating these deals, now they're kind of considering him just like this embarrassment because every time anybody mentions Joe Lowe, they say believed to be hiding in China. And yeah. and China keeps saying, oh, he's not here. But, you know, even Malaysia keeps saying, well, we know he is there. You know, we have very clear intelligence he's there. So I think he's just going to have to stay there for as long as he wants to stay free uh, unless there's some deal he can work out with somebody. But it's, it's, it's improbably close to impossible that he could work out a deal with the U.S. He might be able to work out a government a, a deal with Malaysia if the government swings back another direction or something like that. But I think he'll have legal problems for the rest of his days. And he, he sort of hopes to be like a Mark Rich character where he lives abroad and sort of eventually finds a way to get a pardon or something like that. But it seems unlikely to me. Well, he's still... Uh, he's still claiming that that he has done nothing wrong actually so there, there's a documentary released last month by al jazeera called joe Lowe: hunt for a fugitive and and he's quoted as saying i don't believe there's any wrongdoing and he actually goes on to suggest that he he merely borrowed the billions from one mdb um which yes. i thought was a, a wonderful excuse i mean <laughs> you know yeah no, really no, he, a bit stronger than that. he he actually really truly believes that if you create a fake loan agreement between the person that's being robbed and then the person who's receiving the stolen money, that it's okay. But it's all just papers that were were created to, to justify these flows. And there was, there was like this, I mean, I think his cover up in that respect is just laughable, to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, fascinating, Bradley. Thank you so much. Um, I think we've got uh, we've got a bit of time now for a, for a couple of questions uh, from the audience. Bradley, did you ever feel that you were getting yourself into some trouble as the kind of investigator and journalist? Did you ever feel in danger as the, as the evidence of the scandal was beginning to unfold? Well, I think th there were a few examples. For example, um, one time Tom was in Malaysia in the in the kind of early days of the scandal, and I got a phone call from somebody saying, "We know Tom's at this hotel, and we're we're thinking about arresting him." So there was there was some kind of hairy moments like that. Um, in general, I think I was always very nervous about cybersecurity, and I remain. That's one of the main concerns I have as a journalist is because very wealthy people can hire people with extraordinary tools for hacking. And you know, if you're willing to spend money, you can find a way into someone's computer. You know, there's somebody out there with a zero-day exploit that's just waiting for some person like Jolo to come along and and you know charge them multi-million dollars to get into someone's computer. Um, and then we later found out um, because of this China-Malaysia dealings, there was a lot of documents that were memorializing these meetings between Chinese and Malaysian officials. And the Malaysian officials formally asked China. To um, to conduct physical and digital surveillance of the Wall Street Journal people working on this story, um, like including like tapping their homes and stuff and following them around. So I think there's there was always stuff going on like that. But I, in general, I didn't feel a, an extraordinary amount of physical threat myself. But they did, I guess, um, and I guess that the the. the kind of lawyers behind this um, did try and threaten um, not just the Wall Street Journal, but but lots of other people around this case as well. And there were all yeah. sorts of attempts, I think you say, to, to kind of suppress the information from from coming out to the fore, um, whether that yeah. be through through the kind of Petro-Saudi leaks to, to some of the Malaysian government ministers that were asking questions, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the legal fight was, I mean, that definitely was caused the most stress because it was just, you know, again, it's one of those things where if, you, if you're willing to spend enough money, you can really cause trouble for someone. I mean, they were threatening, for, for example, to publish in the UK, they were threatening every single bookstore they could find. They were sending them each an individual tailored legal threat. If you, if you carry this book and advertise it in your store, you yourself are, are, um, are, are vulnerable to a libel lawsuit, which is actually in direct contravention of the libel law. It says you may not sue, book, sue booksellers and distributors. You have to sue the author or the publisher. But they were just sort of operating with this like, well, if we send a little bookstore in the middle of nowhere a, a scary letter, they're going to actually freak out and not carry the book. And they 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 were threatening Amazon. They were threatening um, just and, and this this was going on across the world. You know, the the airport bookstore in Hong Kong was being their hand delivering legal threats every six hours um, close to publication. L little bookstores in Australia. Um, actually, Australia was the first place where the book came out, actually. Um, just due to a kind of a quirk of the distribution, and um, and I, I was very glad to see that some of the Australian booksellers they actually gave interviews where they said, "Yeah, I got this crazy legal threat. It probably means it's a really good book, so we're gonna like put it in the window." Um, so I, I appreciated that, but it was a pretty stressful time for us. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, listen, it's a it's a fantastic story and and a really important one to be told because actually, you know, it is very much the the Malaysian people that are suffering from from this, they're the ones that are now faced with the um, the kind of hole in their public finances that, that to to recuperate from these losses. I've got a question here related to that. So, um, a question coming from Henry: the the complicity of senior figures in the Malaysian government is one of the key factors in this story. Um, how far? do you think the situation in Malaysia has actually changed? So you mentioned earlier there are new buffers such as the Anti-Corruption Commission, um, but there are still a number of issues of concern. So Riza Aziz still walking free, and the new government has recently dropped a series of worrying financial crime charges. So do you feel history is going to repeat itself, or have we learned lessons from from um, the, the kind of terrible impacts of this of this crime? I, th I think no matter what, I would say prior to the 1MDB scandal, Malaysia had much stronger um, institutions like the, the Anti-Corruption Commission, the, you know, the, the various entities that were investigating this were investigating it in a kind of proper, independent manner. And after they were quashed by Najib, I think they, those institutions have never recovered. And, and I think Malaysia will still have, just like any country, though, you know, corruption issues, but because the entrenched powers like UMNO are still are still playing a big role. I think there there will never be a full um, holding to account of what happened, including in UMNO itself. You know, because a lot of the money flowed into all these different individual campaigns and and politicians' pockets for their you know that that whole money that went to Najib's personal account. He mostly doled that out as kind of a political slush fund, and. Um, you know, I think there's always worrying signs in this case of, of going backwards. But I do think in general, Malaysian people really um, woke up to the scandal, really understand financial crime more so than many populations around the globe, because this was such a this was a riveting scandal, you know, that they were watching play out in real time. So I don't think the Malaysian people will accept any kind of brazen corruption. So there may be some steps back, but but probably overall it's going to be a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about this as a, as a scandal and, and as a case study, but I think in Malaysia, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of anger on the streets about what had happened and, and um, you know, a lot of demands for, for quite serious change taking place as well. Um, what is, so look, I think probably final question here from the audience. So, um, uh, one here kind of related again. Um, so there are a lot of interlinked malpractices involved in, in this 1MDB score from, from money laundering and, and embezzlement to bribery and corruption. Which revelation shocked you most as you investigated uh, the story and which, which do you think is the most pervasive and insidious in our global economy? I, I think, well, for me, when I was, when we were investigating the scandal, I kept feeling a kind of conservatism about how bad this was going to be 
So I kept thinking, well, it can't be any worse than what we've already found. You know, it, it's unlikely that it's going to be even more. And I think for me, the overarching feeling I had was just kind of shock. At, 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 it was much worse than I thought at, at every step of the way. And and every time I think that I know its limits, I find out that the limits were much further than I expected. Um, so I think for me, it's it's the the way that even I would even argue the 1MDB scandal is not even a particularly well thought out or planned or orchestrated fraud. And yet it was able to go on for so long, spread so far, utilize so many aspects of the global economy and, and the offshore world as well. Um, this is not like a, um, you know, a drug cartel that's been doing it for decades and they've got a whole system and rigor and discipline. This is a kind of, you know, millennial guy who just ran amok in the, in the global financial system and, and mostly kind of came out doing okay for himself. I and mean, he's in China with all this money still. Uh, living free. So I think th that's been the kind of big impact on me. And then also the, secondarily, I'd say is this Belt and Road aspect, just how the, just the, the, the sheer size of these deals, what was at stake, how much money was being siphoned. You know, I was, again, just, it blew my mind because I, I'd heard things about the Belt and Road Initiative, but I'd never seen something in such detail laid out in all the documents that it was, it, this, at least in this case in Malaysia, it was exactly what the the international community feared was possible from these Belt and Road deals. You know, a kind of state-sponsored corruption from the Chinese government against another government, in in order to to weaken that that country's governance, and also to, you know, walk away with these huge, quite profitable infrastructure deals as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's one of the, the most intriguing things about this whole whole scenario is, is what effectively started out as the kind of almost the whims and, and, and kind of um, desires of one individual has grown and impacted so many different countries and states and, and um, leading politicians. And, and ultimately, again, it's it's the people of Malaysia who are, who are most impacted by this um, in terms of grand scale corruption. And so it's kind of morphed and grown, and, and I think we'll probably see more of it to come. This is obviously um, a, a kind of, it feels like a theme that you like to explore in, in your writing. So your latest book, Blood and Oil, uh, was published a few months ago and kind of also focuses on a, on a kind of individual's pursuit of power and wealth in, in this kind of globalized economy. Is this something that you particularly feel personally that you want to explore and write about? Well, I do feel like it's it's an aspect. Like I like to do projects where I, I I get to know how the world works a bit better than I did before, and I just felt there was something extraordinary with Mohammed bin Salman as well that he his rise to power also was so unexpected and so aided by the international financial elite and 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 kind of the investment world. So I think there there is definitely some parallels, and there's actually some quite profound overlaps too because. One of the characters of 1MDB, Turkey bin Abdullah, plays a big role in Blood and Oil as well, trying to oppose his cousin's rise to power. So I kind of just, I feel like Jolo set me up and I'm just sort of following the trails and who knows where it'll lead me next. Well, thank you, Bradley. And, and please do continue to follow those trails. These are these are really important stories to be told. And, and so what you're doing is both brave, but also fantastic and really important for all of us in the kind of global financial community to understand the, the different machinations of power and politics and, and financial crime. So fascinating. Thank you. Um, I Thank think, you. unfortunately, in, in the interest of time, I'm going to have to wrap up um, the Q&A session. So I'd like to first thank our wonderful audience uh, for some brilliant questions there. Um, and from our perspective at Themis, it's so encouraging to see such interest in the 1MDB affair and, and financial crime even if so late in the evening or early in the morning. And um, please do continue the conversation and keep the questions coming over on our theme of Senate, which you can access via the link on the slide, or you can get in instructions from the handout tabs on the lower right of your screen. And we'll, we'll both be there answering questions if you need to. Um, a huge thank you as well to our partners in Compass for helping us organize and broadcast this event in the Asia Pacific region. Um, we've seen today how criminals can hide their illicit activities by creating pseudo-corporate entities, often in offshore jurisdictions shrouded in secrecy. And Encompass provides a valuable 
platform that can help members unwrap many of these corporate entities to uncover the ultimate beneficial owners of companies in question. And as we've spoken about before at Themis, I'm a great advocate for automation and innovation and the importance of using the right technology to mitigate these risks of money laundering and other financial crimes um, for entities that at face value seem totally compliant, but in reality can be anything but. Uh, Roger, I look forward to many more Themis Encompass collaborations, virtual for now, but hopefully face-to-face -face in Sydney, Singapore, and North America as soon as we're allowed to. Um, so thank you to Roger and all of the team at, at Encompass. I also wanted to quickly thank Dow Jones for initially introducing us to Bradley and for their continued partnership and support, which we value enormously, as well as a bit of a shout out to the Wall Street Journal, specifically for supporting investigative journalists like Bradley and his co-author Tom Wright in their quest for truth. And as we've heard, it's such an important set of stories that need to be told. So, so please do carry on doing that. Last but certainly not least, thank you very much, Bradley, for your time and an invaluable insight today. It's been an absolute privilege to interview you again and to hear firsthand your experiences investigating one of the most incredible stories of hubris and greed that the financial world has ever seen. To me, Billion Dollar Whale really highlights why financial crime is an issue that should concern us all. Behind the daredevil glitz and glamour of this incredible story, Malaysia and the Malaysian people now have to face the consequences. The next chapter in this sad story is actually about continued political turmoil and roads, schools, hospitals, houses, etc. that now won't get built because of the multi-billion dollar hole that has to be filled. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for listening today and we hope to speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.